Good morning. If we can find our seats, we'll get started. If you would, turn to a Exodus chapter 12, verse 14. We'll be starting verse 14. Again, that's Exodus chapter 12, verse 14. And if you would read along with me, again, starting in verse 14. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. As a statue forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days, but what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this very day I brought your host out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generation as a statue forever. In the first month, from the fourteenth day of the month, at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. For seven days no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened in all your dwelling places. You shall eat unleavened leaven bread. Let's pray. There I am, Father, Lord. God, I thank you for this passage. I thank you for this festival that you have set up for the Israelites, Lord, to remember the Passover, to remember slavery in Egypt, to remember their newfound freedom and, and calling as the people of God, Lord. I pray as we go through this text, Lord, and, and examine this festival, Lord, that we learn, Lord, that we are called to, to purge out sin in our life, Lord, to, to seek holiness and sanctification, to, to purge out worldliness, Lord, that we're called to, to be in this world, Lord, but look different than the world. We're called to be witnesses, Lord, but be witnesses by reflecting your holiness to a lost and fallen world. God, I pray as we go through this passage, Lord, that we just see clearly your calling on our lives as Christians, Lord. Be with us this morning. In your son's name, amen. I want to continue where we left off last week, talking about the rituals surrounding the Passover. And I, I made a note last week that I think it's interesting as you go through Exodus uh, chapter 12 through 13, which is talking about the Passover. There's only 22 verses, only 22 verses in these two chapters that, that go over the historical narrative, in, a, in other words, 22 verses on what happened, yet there's 34 verses on the laws and feasts and, and rituals that come from the historical Passover. That means 34 verses on how the Israelites were called to celebrate and remember the historical Passover. That means the Passover celebrations that come out of this, these two chapters really dominate the text. It's clear that God wanted the Israelites to remember the Passover and the event to the 10th plague that led to their freedom. And there's three main Passover, or three main rituals that I, um, 
mentioned last week surrounding the Passover. First, you have the Passover feast itself. Then you have the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Then you have the consecra- uh, consecration of the, the firstborn. Last week we went over the Passover Feast. To- today I want to uh, take time and look at the Feast of Unleavened Bread. All right. Do the same thing that we did last week. We're going to walk through the two main passages that, that talk about this feast and just make some comments comments as we go through these two passages, and I, I want to end the sermon today by just looking at some observations. In fact, I have six observations, and we'll spend some time on, on those. So let's just walk through this first passage here. If you would, again, look at Exodus chapter 12, starting in verse 14. It says this, this day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations as a statue forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Last week I said as we go through these rituals that you need to uh, pay attention to three main themes. And I just want to remind you of those three themes. The first one is this idea of remembering. And, and this is the most important theme. And we'll come back to this over and over again. God is calling Israel and the Israelites to remember. Again, look at verse 14. It says, This day shall be for you a memorial day, a day of remembrance of what happened. The second theme is that this remembrance should be passed down from one generation to the next generation, right? From generation to generation. And we're going to talk about this a lot next week. But the third theme is this. These rituals or these festivals are to be kept even in the promised land. In other words, these rituals, these laws surrounding the the Passover were, were to be kept in the wilderness, the 40 years that they wandered in the wilderness, the Israelites. But even when they cross over into the promised land, they are to remember the Passover through these festivals and these rituals that come out of these two chapters. Again, look at verse 15. It says this, Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. Seven days they shall eat bread, in other words, without leaven in it. It's clear as we go through this passage that the, the heart of this festival is no leaven for seven days. Now, to understand why, there's a couple things. I think one of the, something that's important to really understand why is, is just what leaven is. Um, what is leaven? Hear yeast. Yeah, that's good. I uh, had to Google search this because I, I didn't know. I went to school to study Bible, not baking. And so, um, so I, had to, I had to study and search, okay, what is leaven? It's really a substance, usually fermented dough, that would be added to a newer batch of dough or bread to make it rise so the bread would be fluffy. Therefore, unleavened bread has no fermentation in it. it therefore, it's bread that usually is like flat bread. Right? It doesn't rise. And there was two ways, at least back um, when, when the, during the um, antiquity, that two ways of fermenting bread and leavening dough. You can, you can let dough sit out for 7 to 12 days, and that dough will just, over time, ferment itself. Or a quicker way, and this is the normal way of uh, leavening dough, is that you would take dough that has already been fermented or, or leavened, you would take a little piece of it, and you would add it to a, another batch, a newer batch, and that little piece, leaven, would, uh, of older dough, would spread quickly, that leaven, the fermentation, throughout the newer batch, and it would leaven that bread. It was a quicker and easier way of leavening dough, and that's how people do it. So let me ask this question, and you can raise your hand on this one. 
How many of you guys have ever done friendship bread? Let me, let me ask it again. How many of you guys know what friendship bread is? All right. For you guys that didn't raise your hands, my analogies aren't going to work really well for you guys this morning. Friendship bread is the same idea. You, you, you take some dough that already has fermentation in it. You take a little bit, you put it in a little bag, and you take it to a friend, and you give it to them. They make a newer batch, and they put that older batch into the newer batch, and it ferments the whole entire dough. Okay. Same kind of idea how the Israelites would uh, leaven their bread. So look at verse 15. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. So the first day of the feast, the Israelites would remove all leaven, and they would only eat unleavened bread for seven days straight. Listen to this. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. There's some serious consequences. I mean, listen to that penalty. Excommunication from Israel for eating leavened bread during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That person shall be cut off from Israel. Verse 16. On the first day you shall eat, or you shall hold a holy assembly. And on the seventh day a holy assembly. That's the first and last day of this week. No work shall be done on those days. But what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. So again, the first day of this festival and the seventh day, which is the last day of this festival, there's, there's to be a holy assembly, which is just a public gathering a, of corporate worship. There is no work that shall be done on these days. In other words, people were called away from their normal duties, their jobs, to come together and worship on the first and last day of this festival. Look at verse 17. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on the very on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statue forever. Now, remember the timing of the Passover feast, because look at verse 18. It says this in the first month. Okay, remember, God changed the Jewish calendar during Passover. The Passover month, when when the historical Passover happened, became the first month of the year for the Israelites. So verse 18, in the first month, now listen to this, from the 14th day of that month at evening. So remember the timing of the Passover. We went over this last week, or two weeks ago. We've been going over this for like three weeks now, actually. Uh, The 10th day of the first month, you would pick out a Passover lamb, an unblemished lamb. The 14th day... You would slaughter the Passover lamb, and you would have the Passover feast that evening. So on the Passover feast, you would start the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And this is super important. Right? There's an important implication here. Right, right after the Passover feast right, starts the Feast of Unleavened Bread, therefore, um, starting on Passover, you would go seven days without leavened bread from that day on the 14th day. Look at what it says. Verse 18, in the first month, from the 14th day of that month at evening, that's Passover, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day, seven days past the 14th day of the month at evening. And on the 14th day of the Passover feast, that evening starts the feast of unleavened bread, meaning Passover rolled right into this feast of unleavened bread, which shows these two feasts are, are deeply connected. 
Again, there's an important implication, as we'll see as we go through the observations. In fact, they're so deeply connected that in both the Old and New Testament, often these two feasts would just be referred to as the same feast, sometimes called the Passover feast, talking about both, sometimes called the Feast of Unleavened Bread, talking about both. Right? They're both connected, and there's an important implication, but let's keep going. Verse 19. For seven days no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leaven, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. Again, very serious consequences for disobeying this this law to, to eat unleavened bread for seven days. Verse 20, you shall eat nothing leavened in all your dwelling places. You shall eat unleavened bread. Now, turn to Exodus chapter 13, verse 3. Because we're going to see Moses, inspired by God, commanded by God, to, to repeat these laws surrounding this festival. Verse 3, Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Moses is repeating these laws again of this ritual. Verse 4, Today, this is Passover day, Today, in the month of Abib, you are um, going out, And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you a land flowing with milk and honey, that's the promised land, you shall keep this service in this month. That word service, again, this worship service, this festival, these rituals, the feast of unleavened bread, even when you get in the promised land, you are to keep. Verse 6, seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, And on the seventh day you shall be a feast. There shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. Again, there's three rituals in these two chapters. Today we're focusing on the feast of unleavened bread, what we just read. And really the heart of this feast is it's really simple. There's two main instructions. On the seventh day, on the seventh, or um, seven days of unleavened bread, and this starts right after Passover. Pretty simple, but very significant, as we'll see. So let's go and make some observations. Um, I have six observations of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The first four we're going to go through pretty quickly because they're somewhat reviews of last week, and then we're going to spend some time on the fifth observation, but but let's just walk through it. The first observation is this. Again, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, just like the Passover feast, was was another way to remember. This is so important. This is why I'm reviewing it one more time. Exodus 12, 14 says, this day shall be for you a memorial day, a day of remembrance. Now look at Exodus chapter 13, verse 3. Remember this day. What day is it? It's the, it's the Passover, the historical Passover with, with them in Egypt. Remember this day. This is a command in which you came out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. For by a strong hand, the Lord brought you out from this place. Again, a, a command. Remember this day. And how are they to remember it? Well, with two festivals. 
Passover feast and the feast of unleavened bread. Deuteronomy 5.15 says this, You shall remember, this is a command by God, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. So the first observation, again, is that this was a day of remembrance. This feast was to be re- remember what happened in the Passover. The second observation is that, that the unleavened bread was a symbol of um, Israel leaving in haste. It was a symbol of, of Israel leaving in haste. Remember in what manner the Israelites were to eat the Passover meal. We see this in Exodus chapter 12, verse 11. Look at verse 11 real quick. It says this. In this manner you shall eat it. This is the Passover meal. With your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. In other words, you shall eat the Passover meal ready to go. And you shall eat it in haste, it says. It is the Lord's Passover Israelites were to eat the Passover in in anticipation of leaving Egypt. In fact, they were to eat Passover in anticipating being thrown or thrusted out of Egypt. In haste, it says. Eat it in haste. This tells us actually why unleavened bread. It's unleavened bread because it takes time to leaven bread. It took time to leaven bread. Even if you brought old leaven into a newer dough, it took a little bit of time for it to leaven that whole dough. It did it quickly, but it still took some time. And the Israelites didn't have any time. In fact, look at Exodus chapter 12, verse 39. This is, verse 39 is the historical narrative. This is what happened, verse 39. It says this, and they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt For it was not leaven. Why? Well, it tells us because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait. They didn't have time to leaven the bread. Nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. They were were thrust out. That's what the unleavened bread um, points to. Which brings me to a, a third observation. There really, I believe, is a connection between the unleavened bread and the bitter herbs that they were supposed to eat at the Passover feast. Look at Exodus 12, verse 8. Verse 8 says this, They shall eat the flesh that night, that's the Passover lamb, right? roasted on the fire, and this is how the, what they should eat with it, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. They're they're to eat the lamb, in other words, the Passover lamb, with bitter herbs and unleavened bread. And I think there's supposed to be a connection between these two in verse 8. Between the two, the, the bitter herbs, which was to remind the Israelites of the bitterness of life in, in Egypt. That word bitter actually is used in Exodus chapter 1, verse 13, which says this, So they, the Egyptians, they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard services. In other words, the bitter herbs was a reminder of the bitter slavery that that it wasn't good in Egypt. 
Therefore, the bitter herbs and unleavened bread really complement each other. Just think about it, okay? Right? When you put these elements together, it was, a, it was a reminder to the Israelites how bad it was in, in Egypt, right? Bitter herbs and how badly they wanted out. Unleavened bread. They wanted out and and it was a it was a reminder of them being thrusted out, God being faithful to free them from the, the slavery, the harsh slavery. The bitter herbs and unleavened bread was a reminder that it wasn't good in Egypt. Fourth observation that I'd like to make is that the unleavened bread was a symbol of a new beginning. Just remember the timing of the Passover. Exodus chapter 12, verse 1. Look at verse 1 in, in chapter 12. It says this, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Again, we've hit this a couple times. God is commanding that the month of the Passover... It was to be the first month of the year in the Jewish calendar. God wants Israel to see the Passover, in other words, as a new beginning. A new beginning. And we're going to see this symbol, this new beginning idea, go throughout the Exodus here. But I I think it's symbolized in unleavened bread. Israel was to leave behind all the leaven found in Egypt. It was a new beginning when they were out in the wilderness, when they crossed that Red Sea. It was a new beginning for the Israelites. Again, think about friendship bread. Why do they call it friendship bread? Because you're sharing a piece of older leaven from a dough that, that was from your house with a friend. In other words, there's a connection Right, the old leaven is given to a friend when he makes dough, a, a new dough. That, that old leaven changes the new dough to look like and, and, and be like the old dough. There's a connection. That's why they call it friendship bread. Therefore, the bread that hasn't been touched with older leaven really symbolizes a new beginning. It's not this fermentation leaven that's getting passed down from bread to bread to bread. It's not connected to any older dough. So unleavened bread really is a a symbol of a new beginning. And this really leads us to the fifth observation. This is where I want to spend some time and slow down. These four observations up to this one really kind of tell us, I think, the the deeper meaning of this. And, And the fifth observation, again, is probably the most important observation that Unleavened bread was a symbol of this um, continuity between Egypt and Israel. There is to be a break, a separation, which really symbolizes a discontinuity between worldliness and holiness. And this is going to get very practical for us as Christians today. And so we're going to slow down, like I said, and spend some time here. The leaven of Egypt was to be left behind. The new dough of Israel was not to be connected to the old leaven of Egypt. The author, I think, put it in a really good way. He said this 
in the Exodus, he said, God wanted to do something more than just get his people out of Egypt. He wanted to get Egypt out of his people. All the influence of Egypt's pagan ways, all the evil practices of the Egyptian cult, God wanted the Israelites to leave it all behind when they, they went through that Red Sea and came out on the other side. Egypt in, in Scripture, in fact, is really pictured as death. It's pictured as slavery, paganism, unholiness, false worship, and all types of gods that they worship. God wanted Israel to leave it all behind, to, to leave the leaven of Egypt behind. And from this point on in Exodus, really, from this point on in the Pentateuch, Egypt is portrayed as a picture of worldliness. Worldliness. How, how the world operates, how, how all other countries in the world operate Egypt. It was this picture of worldliness. It's under the control of the evil one. Right? In fact, we've seen that Pharaoh is, is being pictured as the seed of the serpent, really a child of Satan himself. That's who was in charge of, of Egypt. In the Old Testament, Israel was called to be different than the world. They were called out of the world and to be different than the world. Different than, than Egypt. To look different than Egypt. Again, they were to leave Egypt behind. They were to leave worldliness behind. This is one of the reasons in the Old Testament they were given so many laws. 613 different laws in the Old Testament. These laws were to separate Israel from the world. That there would be a separation. Right? But don't get me wrong on this. Even though there was meant to be a separation from Israel and the world, Israel was meant to be a witness to the world. This is very clear in the Old Testament. Abraham's offsprings were, were called to be, be a blessing to the nation. Israel was meant to be a blessing to, to all the nations of the world, a, a witness to the world. It's why God put the promised land where he did. Think about it. Where's the promised land? Where's Israel? Right in the middle of the whole world. Any world map you look at, what's right at the center? Israel. Israel's touching three different continents, not countries continents. And three of the most diverse continents, you have Europe, Asia, and Africa. Think of all the different people groups that are represented in Europe, Asia, and Africa. And they all touch right at Israel. They were meant to be, be a witness to the world. They were called to be a witness, but they were called to be a witness by being different than the world. You know, that was one of Israel's greatest problems in the Old Testament. They wanted to be like every other nation. But they were called to be different than every other nation. They were called to reach the nations by being different than every other nation, to reflect God's holiness to an unholy, fallen world. That's what Leviticus 19.1 says. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. 
They are to reflect God's holiness and therefore be a witness to the world. You know, in a very similar way, the church, the church is called to be separate from the world. To leave the leaven of this world behind. To be a witness to the world by being different than the world. In fact, listen to 1 Peter 1, 15. This is a command to the church. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. That's Leviticus 19. The same command given to the church. Just like the Israelites, the church is to leave the leaven of this world behind. It is to be a witness to the world by being different than the world. I mean, just think of Israel for a second. Like, how many times did they want to go back to, to Egypt? <laughs> right? How many times did they, they want, to, want to be just like the other nations throughout the history of, of the, Israel and the Old Testament? And I believe in, in the New Testament, the church we often want to reach the world by being like the world. We want to reach the world by being similar to the world, by looking like the world, adapting to the world. But we are called to be a witness to the world by being different than the world. Why, why would we be attracted to the world if we were just like them? We wouldn't. We have to be calling people as we go out and share the gospel to something different. Yet so many churches just look like a concert or totally worldly. Just like Israel, the church is called to, to leave the leaven of this world behind. In fact, again, this is so important. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. I think we, we, we have compassionate hearts and want to reach the world, and sometimes we, we make the mistake of saying, well, if we can just attract them by being like them, they'll come. That's not our calling. Look what it says in 1 John 2, 2 verse 15. It says this, Do not love the world or the things in the world. There's meant to be a separation from us, the church, and the world. The kingdom of, of this world and the kingdom of God are in, inherently in, incompatible. Listen to what John says. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. I'm just going to be critical for a second here. I just think there's a lot of churches that are out there, and I'm not thinking of any in particular. I've just seen enough where there is a love of the world. What's that mean? The love of the Father is not in them. You can't love the world and love God. James makes it even clearer. James 4.4, 4, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? 
Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You can't love the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God because they're in opposition. The kingdom of this world hates God. This presents us with a really important question that I think we need to answer. What is world? What's world mean in verse 15? If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. I think it's an important question because there's things in this world that I love. I love my family. I love this church in this world. I love creation. In fact, I love to go on bike rides. It gets me outside and I can see creation and breathing fresh air. What does it mean, world? What's world mean in verse 15? Thankfully, John doesn't leave us with a vague understanding of worldliness. He tells us exactly what it is. Look at verse 16. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eye and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. John gives us three worldly desires or three worldly lusts. That need to be purged out of our lives. The first one is the desire of the flesh. I like the NASB better. It says this, the lust of the flesh. And don't just think sexual sins. We, we hear that word lust and desire. And a lot of times I just think because we're such a sexualized age, we just think sexual sins. But, but it's more than that. In fact, Paul says in Galatians 5, 19, Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, that's one. Impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, division, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. It's more than just sexual sins. The desires of the flesh are all desires centered in your sinful nature without regard to the will of God. The New Living Translation just has a craving for, for physical pleasures. I, I like that. Second, the, the desire of the eye, or, or again, I like the NASB, the lust of the eyes. Another worldly desire, simply lusting after things with the eyes, coveting with the eyes. And we see this throughout Scripture. David coveted with his eyes. Second Samuel 11, verse 2. It happened... Late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the road of the king's house, that he saw, saw with his eyes, he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. Again, it's not just sexual sins. Achan, in the book of Joshua, it says this in Joshua 7, verse 20, And Achan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord of Israel, and this is what I did when I saw with his eyes, when I saw among the spoils a beautiful cloak from Shinar and uh, 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them. Lot's wife, listen to this in Genesis 19:26. But Lot's wife behind him looked back. She looked back with her eyes, and she became a pillar of salt. 
Listen, you know, you know, Lot and his wife were leaving a pagan country and culture. And Lot's wife didn't separate herself from that pagan culture she was leaving. She, she looked back. She lusted with her eyes. Listen, she still had leaven in her heart that she desired from that pagan culture. And she looked back at it. Your eyes are connected to your heart. They cultivate sinful cravings, dissatisfaction, covetedness, idolatry. And finally, we, we have the pride of life. Pride is the root of all sin. It's what makes us want to gratify the flesh. It, it's, it's what makes us covet with the eyes. When you add these three things together, the desire of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, and the pride of life, you can define worldliness. Worldliness is, is not a hatred of things within the world. Worldliness is the sin of allowing your appetites, ambitions, desires, and, and conduct be fashioned and shaped by earthly values. And look what it says in verse 17. And the world is passing away along with all its desires. It's just like Egypt. For the Israelites, there was no hope in Egypt. It was hopeless. The world, just like Egypt, offers no hope. Everything in it will disappoint. All the lust that we find in this world will disappoint, and it will all be destroyed one day. It says the, the world is passing away, but... Whoever does the will of God abides forever. For the Christian, there is meant to be this separation of, of worldliness and holiness. In Exodus, it's symbolized by Egypt and Israel. It's symbolized by leaven and unleavened bread. Leavened bread symbolizes worldliness in, in Egypt, and unleavened bread symbolizes holiness, purity. Again, this is so important. Let's just spend some more time here. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6. First Corinthians 5. Verse 6, it starts off by saying, your boasting is not good. And just to give the context, this is a church, the Corinthian church. Um, I would love, I can't wait to get to heaven to meet the people from the Corinthian church. They have to have some interesting stories. Um, they, they, I mean, they get beat up a lot by Paul. Um, anyways, uh, your boasting is not good. What are they boasting about? This church has someone that's in blatant sin, like public sin, sleeping with his, his uh, stepmother, in fact. And, and they're boasting about their grace towards this person. He says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know a little leaven? And again, this context is this unrepented sin within the church, just like, just like a, a little unrepented sin, in other words. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? This is what leaven does. 
The analogy, leaven spreads. You take a little bit of it, put it in a newer, newer batch of dough, and it spreads throughout the whole thing. It leavens the whole dough. This is true within a church, but listen, this is also true within our lives, our individual lives. A little leaven, a little sin, a, a little worldliness leavens the whole lump. It spreads quickly. Therefore, verse 7, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. You hear the symbolism here? Paul's going back to the the festivals, the, the Passover festival and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Look at verse 8. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven. Well, what's the old leaven? Well, he tells us the leaven of malice and, and evil. But with the unleavened bread of sincerity and, and truth. Paul, again, relates leaven to malice and evil and unleavened bread to um, sincerity and truth. In other words, leaven represents the, the sinfulness of this world and unleavened bread, holiness and sanctification. I mean, think about leaven. What is leaven? You can answer. Yeast. And what's yeast? Leaven in, in this in this time period it's it's fermentation, right? What's fermentation? It's when it's when food starts to rot. <laughs> think about it. You know, in fact, I worked at Save Mart for a summer in the produce department. And we'd often get, like, rotten fruit that would be there, and we'd have to get it out and make sure that we're just putting out good fruit. Um, it's something that kind of hit me as the rotten fruit came out. You know what rotten fruit smells like? Alcohol. I thought it was just going to be bitter or something. It smells just like alcohol. Why? Because alcohol is fermented fruit or fer- fermented something. <laughs> Fermentation is decay rot. It's the process of it, at least. Listen to 1 Corinthians 5, 6. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven, a a little rot, a little decay, a little sin leavens the whole lump? Again, verse 7. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. Paul had a zero-tolerance policy for sin, in other words. Let me be clear on this. It doesn't mean we won't sin or don't sin within the church or within our personal lives. We sin all the time. It's that when we do sin, we need to get it out. We need to expose it. We need to repent from it. We need to turn away from that sin and and turn to God for forgiveness. We need to get rid of the leaven. It's this continual process within a Christian's life. So the fifth observation is that unleavened bread was a symbol of discontinuity between Egypt and Israel and really between worldliness and holiness leads me to a sixth and final observation. The Passover feast 
and the Feast of Unleavened Bread are meant to go together and teach us about our salvation and how to live as God's people. The Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, again, go hand in hand. First, it was the Passover, and, and then the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That's why last week's sermon was the Passover, and this week's sermon is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. I love what Philip Ryken writes on this. He says this, Passover is about getting saved. We spent a lot of time on it, right? It reminds us that, that we have been delivered from death by a perfect substitute whose blood was shed as a sacrifice for our sins, right? Think about it. The Passover, you picked out a lamb, an unblemished lamb. You would slaughter that lamb as a sacrifice. In, fa- in fact, uh, a substitute for us, atoning for our sins, substitutionary atonement. You would paint that blood on the doorpost, and God says this, When I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you. That's Exodus twelve thirteen. What is that? That's salvation. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, on the other hand, reminds us what God wants us to do once we've been saved. The Passover is about justification. We've been justified by, by the blood of the Lamb, and, and that's the true Lamb of God. We've been justified by the blood of Christ. The Feast of Unleavened Bread is about sanctification. We are to be sanctified by becoming more and more like Christ. By, by purging out sins and worldliness that's within our lives. Again, that's why the order is so important. That's why... I made it very clear as we went through the commentary. On the 14th day, you would slaughter the lamb, celebrating the Passover feast. And that same night, that feast begins the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That's because sanctification starts as soon as we are saved. As soon as we are justified by the blood of Christ, we start the process of being sanctified slowly purging out sin and worldliness and getting rid of the leaven within our lives. For Israel, that meant after the exodus, after they crossed the Red Sea, the nation was called to holiness. In fact, you know, I think because there's cartoons and movies of the exodus, like we kind of, we like endings, right? Like the, the end at the end of movies. And so when you do a story of Exodus, it like always ends at the Red Sea. They're they're in the wilderness. It's like over with. But if you go through the book of Exodus, that's not even halfway through the book. In fact, the Pentateuch as a whole is one large story. And and Israel kind of starts towards the end of that story, and it spreads, becomes a nation in in Exodus. So the the start of Israel as a nation really starts in the beginning of Exodus. But that goes all the way to the, the end of Deuteronomy, Right, just before they enter into the promised land, meaning this is just the beginning of the story. <laughs> the Exodus. That's why there's so much in the second half of Exodus on holiness, on Israel, how they're to live as God's people. For us as Christians, the Feast of Unleavened Bread teaches us that, that the Christian walk doesn't end at salvation. In fact, it's just the beginning. It's a reminder that we are to purge out sin in our life, to get rid of the leaven and pursue holiness. To look different than the world. 
So let's end with just some application to us as a church and maybe you as an individual. If you would turn to 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3. When I was in seminary, I've said this a couple times, I, I purposely, of all my electives, just took as many counseling classes as I could because I just felt like, not that I had teaching down, but that was kind of the gifting that God has given me, and counseling just really scared me as a, as a young man. Um, and so I just took as many counseling classes as I could, and one of the, cal- one of the classes was uh, problem, or, uh, typical problems in biblical counseling. And um, the professor there has done counseling his whole life. And he said, you know what? The, the number one thing that I've ever counseled on, he said, is people trying to make a decision. People coming to my, my office and asking me, hey, I just want to know what the will of God is. Hey, should I marry this girl? Should I, should I go to this college? Should I become a missionary? Should I, like, I, I just, I want to know what, what the future holds. I want to know what the, the will of God is for my life. And what's interesting is the Bible tells us exactly what God's will is for your life. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3. This is the will of God. (laughs) Your sanctification. So many people struggle with this, but the Bible tells us exactly what we should be pursuing in our lives. This is the will of God. Your sanctification. Your holiness. I just think we miss it because more people come to my office just struggling with what the, the will of God is, meaning the future, and not come to my office struggling with, with trying to be holy. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor not in the passions of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. There's a separation between us and the Gentiles. Those that don't know God and those that know God. That no one transgress or wrongs his brother, fellow Christian, in this matter. Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. And we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity. But in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Why does God give the Holy Spirit? Well, for a number of reasons, but one of them is your sanctification, your holiness, to grow more and more like Christ. This is God's will for your life sanctification, holiness. This is what we should be focusing on. We, ju- we just have a tendency to focus on things that are completely outside of our control. I mean, we watch the news and we worry. <laughs> That's become a pastime, I think, for at least most conservatives. Uh, we watch the news and we just worry. What's the future going to be like? I don't know how many times I hear, uh, what's it going to be like? for my kids and my grandkids and, and their kids. Like, tomorrow's out of our control. It's outside of our hands. We are so focused on things that are completely out of our control. And we lose sight of what God has called us to. Obedience, holiness, sanctification. 
for this is the will of God, your sanctification. Let me end by reading Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. And I want to do this as an encouragement. I know a lot of you are being faced right now with hard decisions and and a lot of you are going through tough circumstances, and I'm not trying to downplay this. So let me read this as an encouragement. Matthew 6, verse 25. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is life not more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the sky. They do not sow nor reap nor gather crops into their barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more important than they? And which of you, by worrying, can add a single day to his lifespan? I mean, how many days have we added by watching Fox News or CNN? If anything, we're taking days away, right? Like, through stress. And why are you worried about clothing? Notice how the lilies of the fields grow. They do not labor, nor do they spin thread for cloth. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothed the grass of the field which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you? You of little faith, do not worry then, saying, What are we to eat, or what are we to drink, or what are we to wear for clothing? For the Gentiles, this is how Gentiles live, this is how non-believers live. For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. Not that they're not important, but listen to verse 33. Here's the command. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be provided for you. That's our marching orders. We should be way more focused on personal holiness, seeking the kingdom, seeking righteousness, than worried about what tomorrow holds. Verse 34, So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. That's true. In other words, we are called to get the leaven out of our lives. The worldliness, the sin out of our lives. We are to be focused on that. We are to seek holiness and trust God with the future. It's all in his hands. Let's pray. There, Heavenly Father, God, this sermon is, is for me just as much, if not more, than anyone, Lord. God, I pray that you help me just to trust you with the future, trust you with tomorrow, to not be anxious with events that are outside of my control, Lord, that I seek you, that I seek your kingdom, that I seek your righteousness, that I seek holiness, that I purge evil and sin that's inside my heart, Lord. Help me to grow more and more like your son, God. Help, help me to be focused on becoming more and more sanctified. But I pray that is true for our church too, Lord. 
that we look so different, that we, that we are holy, Lord, that we, we look holy, that people outside see us and, and they see a, a pale reflection of you, that they see something different than what the world is offering, that they don't see the same thing. God, help us as a church, individual members of this body, Lord, to seek holiness to your glory. In your son's name, amen.